What's up, skaters? Uh, welcome back to another episode of Vent City. Tonight, I've got my favorite local New Yorkers, Adam Burns and Ted Schmitz, and it's SOTI season, so we're talking CTE, we're talking Pedro Delfino, we're talking the canonical talking head song, Road to Nowhere, that Pedro decided to skate to. Um, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, we've got uh, my dear friend, uh, Mon Hamad, on to talk about Palestine. Mon is, again, a very good friend of mine. Uh, he's the reason that I visited Palestine in the first place. Um, he's also a documentary photographer, human rights researcher, and campaigner. You didn't include in your intro that you're also a skater, Mon, a ripping skater. Um, and you you just wrote this uh, amazing piece for Skate John. Shout out to Skate John for publishing this and being brave enough to publish it called On Skateboarding, Solidarity in Palestine. Uh, and I thought maybe, you know, tonight we could just have a candid discussion about our experiences in Palestine. You've spent a lot of time there. You live there. I visited twice. Um, and we could start by reading this article. It's quite short. And I know that 10% of you will read it if, uh, if you haven't already. So we're just going to read it on air and then we can just jump off from there. So, uh, Mon, you got the article pulled up? Yep. All right. Give it a rip. Cool. Thanks for having me, first of all. So it's called On Skateboarding Solidarity in Palestine. The first time I ran away from the cops was on my skateboard in the eighth grade in U.S. suburbia. It is my earliest memory of being politicized. Skateboarding is a political act, is it not? Our culture, our practice, and our politics takes shape from the streets. We are witnesses to the systems, artisans of our surroundings, and political agents of the space we inhabit. Through skateboarding, we develop a profound appreciation for the streets. We understand that it is a miraculous place, a microcosm of our world, disgusting, violent, and beautiful. The street is not just a setting. Instead, it is an indoctrination to our concept of justice. I know, I feel, that skateboarding has a long history as a counterculture and movement against state-sanctioned violence to create, resist, and manifest power. I'm not alone when I say that a ledge is not just a ledge, a set of stairs or a gap is not just empty space, but instead they serve as portals to a world of our own. One where we engage with the space around us instead of just being victim to it. One where we correct the world around us instead of standing idle. Street skateboarding is an interpretive dance with our world and its people an evidence of our unique lens. Our craft equips us with a perspective infused with humanity and a touch of rage. Skateboarding allows us to zoom into the global pitfalls swarming our surroundings, our space. From gentrification to genocide, a mirror to reflect, to resist, and to stare back. Back towards the killer cops, the soldiers, the yuppies, and all of their gaze. There is incitement in their eyes that we are the rats, yet they are unaware that we are all in the slums of Rome and that we are trying to break free. 
As a Palestinian skateboarder who has been documenting the skateboard scene in my home for seven years, I know the importance of our craft, of skateboarding's escape and resistance, how we refuse to succumb to a stolen imagination. Instead, we use skateboarding as alchemy. We concoct joy, we disrupt the headspace of violence, and we manifest power with, rather than power on. Street skateboarding in Palestine, like in the streets of Washington, D.C., or the sidewalks of Wall Street, is a confrontation to and with the powers that be. In Palestine, where land and resistance hold an unwavering relationship, skateboarding accompanies us as a medium to freedom. We may be few, numbering only in the dozens, but we exist as small crews across all of occupied Palestine. We are skaters, which means we share resources and recycle decks. We rock, paper, scissors before a game of skate. We use candles as wax and thrasher clips are atop our insta-feed. We are protectors of our homies. We skate in solidarity. We evade security and confront the machines of death at our footsteps. We DIY to resist a disgusting occupation and supremacist regime. We mourn the fallen skaters. Skateboarding is liberatory. Literal skateboards have been wielded as weapons against white supremacy in the U.S. During the 2020 uprising, Anthony Huber, 26, a father and skateboarder, was shot and killed while attempting to take down an armed Kyle Rittenhouse with his skateboard in Kenosha, Wisconsin. In January 2023, Tyree Nichols, a father and skateboarder, was beaten to death by killer cops in Memphis, Tennessee. Palestinian skateboarders are being killed too. Since October 7th, two skateboarders were murdered by the Israeli regime's bullets in the occupied West Bank, funded by our tax dollars. On October 12th, Mohtadi Salim, 17, was killed near the apartheid wall in his hometown of Jayus. He was trying to escape Israeli gunfire when a single Israeli bullet killed him. On October 25th, Hamza Taha, 19, was killed by the Israeli regime during a military raid in his hometown of Kalkilia. The largest protest in U.S. history calling for Palestinian freedom took place on November 4th in Washington, D.C., commencing from Freedom Plaza. I spent three years living and skating in D.C. at Freedom. It remains one of my favorite places on this planet, tied with Palestine's Elbire Plaza. They both share the most important element to skateboarding. Community. Skateboarding is a transnational subversion to systems of oppression, where state-sanctioned violence erects walls from Mexico to Palestine. Our craft transcends borders, transcends skateboarding. We are connected through pavement, sharing our streets, our struggles, and pushing for solidarity. Beautiful. You're good, good at writing, huh? And there's there's actually <laughs> ripping photos in here. The The photo of Aram bombing the hill is like one of the sickest skate photos I've ever seen. Appreciate it. Really nice. So maybe we could just like take a step back um, because obviously you wrote this article in the midst of, of everything uh, following October 7th and you happen to be in Palestine shooting Aram's uh, GQ article. But maybe we could talk about how you came to visit Palestine in the first place. Your, you know, your life is a Palestinian American in Dearborn, right? Isn't that where you're from? Outside of it, white suburbia called a city called Troy, 20 minutes from Dearborn. I was born in Palestine, but I moved to this place called Troy when I was two, which was an interesting sort of shapeshift in a way. And I spent 
most of my youth and early adult life there, I, I very much carried on in the sort of normal American life. And in 2014, when I graduated undergrad, I sort of had this inclination to go back to Palestine for the first time in a long time. I think the last time I had been was like 10 years prior ostensibly just to take this Arabic class before I was supposed to go to law school and carry on with this sort of like very christened white American life. And I went in 2014, which for some of you who know, there was another huge sort of onslaught uh, and Israeli aggression on Gaza while I was there that summer. It also coincided in a time where I was picking up skateboarding again. Like I had skateboarded most of my life growing up from as early as like nine years old, but in college, I sort of dropped it as most stupid college kids do. They think that, you know, college life is more important. And in this weird intersection of like going back to Palestine for the first time in a long time, picking up skateboarding again, and also stumbling into Palestinian skaters very randomly, like just walking in this small little Christian village, sort of blew my mind. and. I remember sort of deliberating with myself a lot, being like, fuck law school. Like, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Correct assessment. (laughs) Yeah. And flew back to the U.S. to Michigan. And like two days before law school was supposed to start, I dropped out and said, fuck that. I'm going to move back to Palestine. So that kind of like pulled me back. It was that trip. I think it was like a very serendipitous trip and a very important sort of like moment in just my young life of understanding where and how to put uh, my energy and realizing that Palestine was this cause that I always knew of, right? Like growing up as a Palestinian American, Palestine is really important in all these households, but it sort of exists just as an idea, you know, like it's, it's paintings on the wall, it's Al Jazeera on the TV, it's smells from the kitchen, but it's a very abstract thing. And I think going there as an adult and skating seeing skaters in this village was just like mind-boggling for me and it it was enough to to pull me back home are those skaters still around in the scene not really i think the only one that you might know is mejd uh-huh. um the other ones were in this village called birzet it's like the small christian village yeah. they were like skating under this church and i used to just like go to sessions with them under this church. I mean, I was like 21 and they were like 15. So they were like new and getting really into it, but they had sort of pulled out, but they were important in that they sort of kept, I think, you know, as we'll talk, like the scene is very small, but there's always enough. There's a pocket of people who are consistently skating, which is just important to continue. It's sort of beating heart. And they were one of these very early crews that were existing in the West Bank. And and then where in the timeline does SkatePal get founded? I think SkatePal, if I'm not mistaken, they started like really simple stuff while I was there, or maybe the year after. Basically, just like Charlie, who's the founder, just sort of setting up like little DIY ramps and very like basic sort of infrastructure. But after this whole like law school thing, I ended up moving back to Palestine in 2015 this was before there was like skate pal volunteers and the sort of architecture that keeps it consistent. I sort of was there and hit them up and I said, yo, I'm here. I'd love to like run classes or something. So I helped rebuild this really gnarly crappy mini pipe that was in this sports club. 
just having no idea what I was doing (laughs) and like using the wrong wood and like learning on the fly. But we ended up setting up this ramp and all these kids who were super stoked to skate. So it was also like a good, it just felt good to also see that like, Oh, this scene is like kind of real. Like this is, this is what the creation of a skate scene looks like. It's very dirty and you have to like volunteer and put your energy out just to like show people what a skateboard is and how to engage with it in a way that gives them liberty to like, you know, free flow in their own way. But it felt really cool to be witness to people seeing and touching the skateboard for the first time in their life. And that really beautiful spark that I know a lot of us have sort of live in between my eyes. And then you eventually you came to work right at Amnesty. Yeah. So then to appease my, my Palestinian mama and baba, uh, instead of doing law school, I got a master's, which is also, you know, good life, go to school, college, you know, that sort of thing. It was a good way to give me a job in Palestine and also try to help the cause in a way that I felt would utilize my privilege of going to these, you know, US American schools. And uh, I did a master's degree in human rights and international law and ended up moving. I was in DC with all these like yuppies in my master's program and also was like, I need to get the fuck out of here. So (laughs) uh, (laughs) applied to this amnesty job and I ended up getting it, which was really rad. And I was there for like five years. I'm curious what the experience was like for you working in a human rights context, like with the legal framework with regards to Palestine, because like something that I was really struck by when I first visited was just like the sheer number of people who are there under like NGO auspices, I would, I would say that kind of like work in the, the global nonprofit world. Yeah. I mean, there's like this word called the NGOization of Palestine, which I think is touching on that. Um, it was important. It was frustrating. I think it was eye-opening. I guess I was lucky in that I sort of helped organize a lot of our work that was now in this new Palestine office. So it was Amnesty's first time opening up sort of regionally. So it felt really cool in that sense. And I had a full Palestinian team, which was really cool. Um, I think it's frustrating just because I think five years in the human rights sector will make anybody jaded. And I think five years as a Palestinian in the human rights sector will like make you insane (laughs) because it was very, it it sort of was like this abstract world where it's like we read these conventions and these treaties and all of these buzzwords that get spewed in UN halls and try to reflect them on the ground and like utilize what legal standings have or have said and put it against the reality. And you sort of are just documenting almost the same thing for like 75 years. Like the the reports that we would do, you could pull a report from like 1988 and it would almost be verbatim, you know, like excessive use of force, unlawful killings, administrative detentions, like all of these on their own, like grave violations of human rights sort of just happen as they become mundane almost like you're, you're documenting it. So consistently. And I think what's more frustrating is if you zoom out a little bit, you see that like Palestine, especially the West Bank, which is like sort of like conceptually where this Palestinian state was supposed to happen post Oslo, which were like the peace treaties that happened uh, in 93. You see that it's really just held up by like global NGOs. And I felt really good that I wasn't working for like a humanitarian organization, which 
human rights like we would just do research and campaign. But humanitarian organizations like UNICEF or UNRWA or Save the Children, they're like much more part and parcel to the machine of just keeping the status quo very miserable. Mm-hmm. As they're doing the basics, but you're not really building an infrastructure for a state. You're sort of just like outsourcing it to big NGOs where Germans and people from the Netherlands come and like put it on their resume and then they fuck back off. Yeah. And it's like the the thing that I was really struck by is just like the lack of agency. You know, like that's what happens when when NGOs are just kind of propping up your your state is that you don't really have any control over your your life. No, definitely. Definitely. And I think it's like you can look at that at the micro level of how NGOs are run even here and just assume when you're looking at Palestine, it's sort of this huge state building project for the international NGO world where they're incentivized and invested in being there. Uh, not so much in there being like a fully fledged state that has agency because in a way it's pulling the NGOs out. Palestine is so central to so many other causes because it's really just like an emblem for so much of these problems you're talking about, right? Like empire and militarization and like crappy neoliberal economic policies and settler colonization and all the different themes that can cut through so many different problems here almost get like uh, encapsulated, can be encapsulated in a sort of way when you look at what's happening in Palestine. But it is frustrating. Like when I was in Palestine in October until like November, so for the last month, coming back here, is a, it's a mindfuck. Like just the way that people can carry on so normally and be so detached. And I think the, the the detachment part for me is super frustrating when it's, you know, we're not in some random country that doesn't have a stake. Like we're in the US, which is funding and propping up the entire regime, which is backing this annihilation. And it's like, when I say our tax dollars, I mean, like literally like the, the tax dollars that get cut from your checks every month are being funneled to artillery and bombs and Apache helicopters. and like the, it's almost harder to speak to just like a mainstream liberal about that than somebody else because they're in this fantasy world where their imagination could never assume that that sort of power would happen. When it's like, what are you talking? Like that power is happening and been happening. And you know, like you've been to DC, Ted. Like the the grip of power is so infatuating that I think people will see their proximity to working in these institutions as like some metric of their worth, which is like a myth. It's like, you're working, you're working like 75 layers behind the scene, but you're still part of the system. And, you know, it's actually so hard to talk to people, frankly, about Palestine and DC, because they'll be worried about their jobs or they'll be worried about like the security clearance when, you know, it's like, Ryan, when I went, to your wedding in Arizona, it's like, it was way easier to talk about Palestine there than it would have ever been in a place like DC. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, maybe it would be helpful also if I talk about my timeline and how I got 
ended up there. Um, you know, I get asked this question a lot, like, why am I interested in Palestine or why do I spend a lot of time talking about it? And it's a conversation that takes a lot of time, you know, to get out there. Uh, but, you know, it'd be good to put on the record because Mon is actually the reason why I visited the first time. Like I, you know, it was immersing myself in all sorts of topics around leftist politics and, you know, reading books. And I remember like the first time I, I watched people on the internet like arguing about Israel and Palestine and just feeling that knack of like, one, I feel really stupid, which is a thing I feel all the time. And two, like, I need to do more research to get to the bottom of like how I feel about this because I'm I'm a person who like th that's a big way of how I operate is like I need to have some sort of like moral understanding of like the contours of this conflict. And so I remember, you know, reading a bunch of books and I posted about an Angela Davis book, the one that, you know, tethered the movements in Ferguson to Palestine, which is a, a really great read. And well, anyways, yeah, so Mon reached out to me and and I happened to be on a trip with Etnies in Spain and then I visited for the first time and, you know, something we talked about in our text was that I had read a lot about Palestine and Israel and the settlements and I knew the contours of everything and I still deep down, like, I feel a great shame about this, but like, I, I, I genuinely was like, there's no, like, is, is it really this bad? You know, like, could it possibly be as 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 vulgar and as pronounced as someone like Angela Davis makes it out to be? And I remember feeling that, like, even the day before I stepped foot in Ben Gurion Airport, and then <laughs> actually landing in the airport, uh, like, is is a radicalizing experience in and of itself. Like the 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 process of traveling into the West Bank, which you know, as an American, I I don't know how difficult it is to get into Gaza, but it's, you know, remotely impossible, right? As a, as a non-humanitarian worker, like as a, a tourist, essentially, is it's basically impossible to go into Gaza, but you can freely visit the West Bank, but you definitely need to uh, not lie, but you probably are going to omit some details to anyone who talks to you. And I, I feel like it would be helpful if we kind of just like break down exactly what that looks like and, and like what what like getting across the border physically looks like, you know, because my first night I stayed alone in Jerusalem and then you told me to get on this bus and I got on the bus and then we're at a checkpoint and I'm being herded across a checkpoint, essentially what feels like cattle. And then, you know, you, you enter into this world that feels entirely different you know, my first night, like the most remarkable thing that I felt was that, oh, the protection of these people on the Israeli side is at the expense of everything else. Like you're safe in so much as there are soldiers everywhere in a hyper militarized state that is protecting you, which is to say not very safe at all. Yeah. I remember it's funny. I want to like go back to the text one day because I just remember it was, this was also like a funny moment for me where I was like, I'm a skater. But I was like casually texting Ryan Lay being like, come to Palestine, thinking there's no way you would actually come. And he's like, all right, bet Tuesday. And I was like, B before bet was it was common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> common usage. I thought it was going to be like a long combo of like, let's plan it out and all of this. He's like, all right, cool. I'll be there Tuesday. And I was like, all right. And I remember giving you like, you know, good advice. And I guess one thing that's really rad about skaters is you can kind of trust that they'll like find their way home. And you ended up being at the hostel in Ramallah, which I think was the first time we met. But even this question of like how to get in, 
it's a good one to start because I think it like layers the levels of racism that are embedded in Israeli policies. Like you can land in Ben Gurion, have to lie to the soldier and not tell them that you're going to go to the West Bank because they inevitably don't want people to see what's happening in the West Bank because 100%. they don't want they don't want their tax dollars to know that there's violence happening in the name of democracy or whatever they call it. But you would have to cross from what Palestinians call historic Palestine, which was ethnically cleansed in 1948, and Israel was founded upon into the occupied West Bank, which it always sounds like it's so far, but it's not. Like the airport to the checkpoint is probably an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like faster than Ted can probably get from Queens to Manhattan. And you go in, and once you're in, you're sort of in this military apartheid a uh, dual legal system that is all under the radar, but always shows its face when it needs to. So like when you can come into Ramallah, where I was staying, it's also like its own little weird bubble that like things can feel seemingly fine until the violence pops its head out, which happens all the time, happens systematically, happens coordinated and happens for the sake of dominating the lives of Palestinians. But I, for example, as a Palestinian, can't fly into Ben Gurion Airport, right? So, like, even me getting home, I have to, getting home to Palestine, I have to fly to Jordan, another country, cross a triple militarized checkpoint, uh, which is a dehumanizing process, often can take multiple hours, can be closed at the whim of the Israeli soldiers just to get sort of home. And it's always funny because when I tell Americans, it's so like, yeah, but you're American. I was like, no, 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 like, I'm Palestinian. When I'm when I'm in Palestine, I'm Palestinian. Like yeah. my American privilege can dupe a few soldiers if I need it to, but the like layers of racism embedded in the state renders my American passport meaningless, which is important, right? I think I learned a lot about my privilege by understanding the privilege I hold by being an American in Palestine and by understanding how meaningless being American and Palestinian can be in Palestine. Yeah, I mean, I can't overstate uh, the one, the just the sheer level of daily violence that I encountered and is the thing that I, I know, frankly, like I felt really uncomfortable even talking about it because there is this, you know, there is this trend of, of people visiting war-torn countries or, you know, impoverished places and kind of like sharing war stories. So it's, it's like, there's never really a time and a place for it unless I'm, you know, arguing with a family member uh, <laughs> or a friend. But, uh, you know, I think that it's really important to talk about because I was, you know, it's not, it's not this thing where like, oh, if you happen to be there when there's a flare up or, you know, every few months you might encounter, you know, some sort of a scuffle. Like I encountered like horrific shit on in both times that I was there that were like mind boggling, you know, like one night Kyle Seidler and I were skating down the street to go to a, we were just going to a restaurant, I think, and looking at a skate spot and we like veered off into the, the edge of Ramallah where I feel like things are a little, a little more tense, right? Like kind of closer to the checkpoints. And we saw trash on fire in the middle of the street and small children that were throwing rocks into the, into the street perpendicular to us. So we couldn't quite make out. And then we, we, we stepped a few, we stepped over the fire and then walked across the street and there's just fucking IDF soldiers or IOF soldiers shooting rubber bullets at these kids. 
and potentially us. Like we were just there witnessing this. Like I, I it was one of those moments when, you know, as an American, like I'm, I've, you, you have such a privileged life. And w- when my parents are like, oh, don't visit those places because it's scary. Like I, even myself, like I felt like I'm in a place that I should not be. And like, this is very tense. And, you know, for those kids, like, I don't even understand how to process that. Like what that's like for them. <laughs> you know, like yeah. the, what, what like enduring that kind of violence um, on what is like, I, I can't, can't overstate this enough. Like we are miles into when you look at the map of like the two state solution, like miles into the West bank and, and just like how silly it is when people talk about like, well, the Palestinians have their own state. It's like bullshit. They do, you know, like, you know, like there are privileges that are afforded to people in the West bank that, you know, people in, in Gaza don't do not have, but there are soldiers everywhere. There's settlements everywhere. Like you cannot, move any even between towns without experiencing that yeah i mean those raids that happen every day across every government of the west bank they're systematic because it's how you control right like you need that you need to raid villages and refugee camps randomly to instill a level of control so that when kids come out and throw rocks and that act that act in and of itself is saying this is not sustainable. Those kids, and I, I think about this all the time because I think maybe for listeners or people who've never been, they might be like, well, isn't that the fault of the family? Shouldn't the kids be at home? I think people forget that it's like, this is 75 years of raids happening every day. Like yeah. 75 years of it gets instilled as your existence is part and parcel to that resistance. And it would be the equivalent of like, you in your neighborhood and then some foreign army entering a, a refugee camp that you're living in just going to raid and terrorize you and people saying actually no like i'm going to throw rocks at the at the heavily bulletproof jeeps and kevlar vested soldiers to kick them out yeah looking like fucking robocop literally and that level is like it was eye-opening for me because like having, I think from 2014 to now, like, I don't know, probably like six or seven years of that time was in Palestine. It's kind of scary how normalized it gets that you would wake up and be like, oh, they raided the camp. It's fine. Like I have to go grab my coffee and go to work or something, which happens sort of like it becomes programmed into the life because the life reminds you that this level of violence is instilled in the logics of control and domination that happen. You can't avoid violence when violence is everywhere. And I think that's the funny part about Ramallah, especially because it's supposed to be this like fake pseudo capital where the PA, the Palestinian authority has its like, you know, institutions and everything, but Israelis can come in whenever they want. They can raid the villages. They can enter the refugee camps. They come in at night, they'll arrest people abduct people right like there was times where i was walking home from the gym casually with my headphones on and an israeli jeep in an undercover car comes out and just detains and abducts somebody blindfolds them while i'm walking and then they just drive away and it was like well i guess i'll just go back home and continue on with whatever i was planning to do and yeah it's like every moment like that is an opportunity to either put up with that level of violence or or fight back in some capacity right and like just constantly being faced with that uh is just so traumatic like yeah. every 
every single person I met there has intimate stories of, of, uh, you know, being terrorized. Like it's not, you, you will not meet a Palestinian that lives there that is not encountered or has had their family encounter some level of, of really horrific violence. I think also like it would be really helpful to talk about what the process of, of just movement in the West Bank looks like, because, you know, when we were there, I wanted to see biblical sites and I wanted to check out different cities to skate. We wanted to go to the skate parks, which are in a rural part of uh, the West Bank. So, yeah, if you could walk us through what that process looks like of just driving the, what was it, two hours north to Nablus. Yeah. And like for context, this was pre-October 7th. So like right now you can't even get, you can't even do that trip. Like when I was in Palestine in October, I couldn't leave outside of Ramallah. I couldn't leave any of the checkpoints that were surrounding Ramallah, except for when I had to leave back to the U.S. But usually, you know, in the sort of quote unquote normal status quo, the West Bank, if you look at it like a map and you distinguish between Palestinian sort of communities and illegal Israeli settlements, it looks like Swiss cheese, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is all these roads and side roads and insane routes that we would have to take to basically avoid certain settlement blocks, which are illegal under international law, and which have tripled since the Oslo peace process, sort of debilitating what would normally be like a 45 minute drive to Nablus then becomes like an hour and 15 to two hours to five hours, depending on the temperament of the soldiers at the checkpoint. And like I said, none of this is, Palestine is small, like none of this is huge distances. I think it's like, it, being in the U.S. is so trippy compared to it because you can be on a highway for like two or three hours and not ever have to like engage with an authority, which is mind boggling when you're in Palestine. You can't drive more than 30 minutes probably without stopping at a checkpoint. Yeah. And the checkpoints sort of serve as emblems of, of control, right? Like you're driving to go skate a skate park, but you have to stop to get to Ramallah to go to the skate park in Nablus. There's two checkpoints. One leaving Ramallah that sometimes is open, sometimes is closed. And then one entering Nablus, which is called Huwara, which is a really vicious checkpoint. The soldiers there are wild. They're more on the like religious Zionist uh, front because of the settlements that are around there. They'll stop the car. They'll ask for your IDs, your Palestinian IDs. Sometimes they'll look at them, give them back to you and you go. Sometimes they'll stop the car, they'll pop the trunk, they'll search you. Sometimes they'll just say, you can't come. You're not like in your ID. It says what government you're living in. If they don't want you there for whatever reason, they'll just say, you can't come. You have to drive back. And that's like normal. That'll just be like, you know, you tell your home, hey, I tried to come, but the soldiers didn't let me in. Sorry. Like, I'll catch you next time. Yeah, on on our trip back from uh, Jericho, uh, we stopped at a. Aram was driving, and we stopped at a checkpoint, or were forced to stop at a checkpoint. And I had a yeah, twenty one year old kid pointing Uzis at our head. <laughs> you know, like I don't even know if they're loaded or not. Like part of me was skeptical that they are, but just the the like I'm gonna wield this power over you. And and again, like I'm a white American. Like they know the the context of like what happens if something happens to me, right? Like our embassy, I'm sure will be all over it, but it's, it's, it's unreal. Like it was like unbelievable. Yeah. And the most messed up part is that it's on purpose Yeah, because Israelis living in illegal Israeli settlements have different roads. They don't have to go through checkpoints. They have different license plates. They 
in, they can enter and leave the West Bank so swiftly mm-hmm. that it's almost like you don't realize that there's an entire civilian population that's under occupation. And that is on purpose. Like that level of code switching is so schizophrenic because as a Palestinian, you're watching people who have no claim to this village that they just commandeered and are building outposts on and stopping Palestinians from harvesting. Now able to fully fledged build a residential city that looks like West Hollywood. It looks like Phoenix. That was it the thing. So that, like the, the most boring, the most boring Remax tract homes. Like I read this this uh, transcript from Gustavo Petro, who's the president of Colombia. He gave a speech today, and he's very ardently pro Palestine. Probably the most of of any like South American leader. And he said that what we see in Gaza is a rehearsal for the future. And that was my experience visiting the West Bank, and why. It, it like radicalized me so much because I was just thinking, these are not very different from the gated communities that I grew up next to. And the way that those gated communities are getting hyper-militarized, obviously it's a much uh, reduced context, right? But you can see you can see it. Like, I don't want to go to parks with homeless people. I don't want to be around black and brown people. I don't want to be around poor people. So I'm just going to, we're going to live in a gated community. Mm-hmm. We're going to homeschool our kids and we're going to have security guards enforce the place so that we don't ever have to leave. And we, you know, we live next to this beautiful mountain. Yeah, that was my experience there. I was just like, this is so disorienting seeing, yeah, these tract homes and settlements and advertisements for the settlements. Like, please move here. I don't want to say that I was fortunate enough, but I was maybe unfortunate enough to visit one when we went to Hebron. The first time that I visited, you know, Aram and Adham took me down there and they they told me, they were like, you should go into the settlement just to see what it's like. And and I'm not equipped enough to give the full context of Hebron, but it is like the most insane place that I've ever been in the world. Like the level of just starkness to the apartheid and how divided up the city is. Like there's literally cages above the alleyways because the Israelis are throwing trash down at Palestinians and it's everywhere. Like, you know, like we met a shopkeeper who was like, I can't go to the grocery store anymore because they just bombed the the entryway. Or the fact that the Israelis are building their apartments all at least one block or one story higher than all of the Palestinian apartments, just so they have that height advantage, which is again is a kind of like you know symbolic show of force. And yeah, it's just uh, again like <laughs> when I hear Americans who are like, ah, it's like a complicated centuries-old conflict. I'm like, no. <laughs> you if you stepped one one foot in Hebron and or spent an hour there and talked to locals, you would. Uh, disabuse yourself of that notion immediately like it's it's just ridiculous i think the the logic that israel wants people to assume is that it's too complicated and that actually is a fallacy i think people it's convenient to be very complicated because that mucky middle right like that 60 70 percent of people won't want to touch it that's Mm -hmm. a liberal middle yeah and then going back to skateboarding i feel like one of the biggest blessings that i see within the skater world is it's really hard to be in the mucky middle as a skater. Like skaters see the world almost like with all the like bullshit radar lenses that liberal America sees the world sort of off because I think, and how I touched on it in the piece is that they engage in the streets. Like they see 
they see the grime and the cutty of human society. And I think that's a privilege, like to be able to cut through these like keywords of complicated or to feel out of touch is something that skateboarding in a way fights against. Skateboarding is like very in touch. Skateboarding is like a very physical and abstract and mental and like tactile feeling with the world. And that's one thing I've noticed that even, even skaters I met in DC, I didn't have to do any of these like boot camps or try to talk through what's happening in Palestine. I think when they saw what was happening from like five Instagram posts, they're like, bet Israel's fucked free Palestine. <laughs> and that feels really cool. And I think in this piece, what I'm calling towards is like that, that energy that I think a lot of us hold as skaters, whether you're Palestinian or not, you could be a white American from the Midwest who can still really see through sort of the nonsense. Yeah. Street skating in, in urban centers does put it into relief. DC especially is one of the most viciously segregated places you can see in this country. And the, the, the distance between the power and the populations is like, so is so vast, you know, you have like, you have them all and you have, you know, you have literally the halls of power for our empire. And then you have the poorest people, you know, in the country, just, blocks away and or on the same streets and seeing that as skaters who are on the streets yeah you like i don't know i'm from i'm from tempe arizona it's like a college town and we've got like three fucked up guys on the street but even that because of skating you can come in contact with that contrast like you can go to pulaski and see how the park police are also part of Metro, like they're, or they're not part of Metro, but they're part of the same apparatus that is trying to um, sweep the homeless out, you know, and you can see that, that they're doing that to keep this, you know, nice view of the Capitol. Like it's like you, you can, you can see that that doesn't sit right with your stomach. And, and I think that opens up an Avenue to be, it, it creates the kind of person who would understand that, that this ickiness is abroad in harsher relief still, but yeah, no, definitely. This is going to be like less, I guess, theoretical, but what is your skate habit? Like when you're back in Palestine, it's funny because I went in October to shoot this GQ middle East piece because skate pal and Adam got nominated for like man of the year for GQ, which I think is, I don't know. I think it might be the first time a skaters on GQ. Um, <laughs> Rom's pretty handsome too. So makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and I was supposed to be there and we were skating. And then on October 6th, I think was the last day I wish I was photographing meant to leave like two days after, uh, and October 7th happened and I haven't touched my skateboard since. And part of it is because I, I claim in the piece that skateboarding is a resistance and it's an escape. But I think at a time like this, unfortunately, skateboarding seems so meaningless in my life. Yeah. When ironically, it's actually like one of the most important things in my life. <laughs> but at times when there's these like uproars of violence or the genocide that is sort of ongoing, you sort of ditch it. But normally... And I want to talk about the normal because I think it's really beautiful. Like the, the, the skating in Palestine, the craft is, like I said in the beginning, so raw 
of what the formulation of a scene is like that it is is captivating right like you'll you'll hit up four skaters because those are the four skaters in your city you don't have you know the options are slim if four of you are skating at one of the spots it feels as if it's like the equivalent of maybe like a skate team coming and you participating in like like the adidas team coming to like dc or something and you'll take over the plaza which is a small little marble plaza people will watch sort of like infatuated they'll think you're doing like magic tricks they'll think that you're pro like there's all these times that palestinians will come up to us thinking that we're not palestinian asking if we're like professionals as if we're like coming for like a mm-hmm. like a skate video or something but it ends up being sort of normal in that way that you're skate like you know you have your four homies you skate spots you get clips i think this is one thing that's growing more is that there's like especially in ramallah where there's not a full skate park there's a tendency to want to do more street skating which mm-hmm. i think is really cool mm-hmm. you're you'll see people who sort of like graduate from the plaza which is really basic it has a few ledges and a in a big preset to see like a philly set and be like oh maybe that's skatable and it's powerful to see somebody look at a street spot for the first time and envision a trick and then do it and i think like that powerful moment that we have all had to feel like we are interpretive dancers with this space around us at the behest of everybody like i don't care what anybody's thinking like these store owners these people filming it doesn't matter you can take a piece of cement or marble and create a fantasy world of your own and then interact and engage with it is really rad and i'm hoping that the like dominoes of skaters who are now up and going are going to be continuing this scene to have a much more sustainable version of it because as of now it's still like in the dozens a lot of people only skate when there's like skate classes at the skate parks that are like ryan said sort of on the outskirts it's like an hour and a half away and then two and a half hours away which is far but it's growing and like last winter i came i was in palestine and it was the first time i was just walking in the streets and saw like a small crew of skaters that i didn't know it was the first time that i like saw like new skaters and i remember just being so ecstatic that was like this is this is how a scene organically gets created right like you have people who see it pick it up create their own little crew they do their own thing and you're sort of witness to something much more powerful than just one individual on a skateboard did you, did you go up to them and, and are like are you guys a pro skate team putting out a demonstration? <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw him like later that day because it's such a small world and was telling them it's like, it's so rad. And you know, they're, they're like Gen Z TikTok generation. They're like doing all these like little clips and putting like, I don't know, all the rappers with tattoos on their face <laughs> in the background. Yeah. I want to attest to, uh, you know, I'm a bougie bitch and I've been all over the world skating. Um, but Palestine is like straight up one of the best places in the world to skate. Like it's really hilly and there's this really good white marble everywhere or white granite. I don't know what that rock is, is, but, uh, everything is built with that and it grinds unbelievably well. And it's so sick how many people on the street are so supportive of skating. Like, I don't know. I I feel like I don't want to dive into like, oh, Palestinians are like this special people that are so happy and love to build things. But it is kind of true. Like they love like building and helping out. And we several times we would be like skating a spot and need run up 
and a shopkeeper would go into the back of his shop and find wood for us and help us build a run up. <laughs> and the, the contrast between, you know, trying to skate in the States where you're basically, you know, you're, you're playing cat and mouse with security guards and even civilians now like that, you know, that's pretty standard practice is that like most of the, the city dwellers are not on your side either. Uh, it's just, it's so, so cool. Oh, definitely. I think it's because it's still so new and I think skating is really like one can enjoy watching it. I think like yeah. there's a lot of joy to just watch skateboarding. And I think Palestinians pick up on that and are really pumped about it, especially when they find out that there's like Palestinians doing it. They're like, oh, this is super dope. Like, how can I get my kid involved? Mm -hmm. How, where are their classes? And I don't think there's like, I don't know, like the weird destructive side of skateboarding that city folk and security think that it is right like i think most people in the u.s or even in europe when they see skaters they think that we're just like destroying things mm -hmm. yeah. where in palestine it's like they're okay with the ledge being a little scruffed up and you know I, I had security recording me on whatsapp and sharing videos to send to his homies to tell them to come <laughs> watch us like it's the almost antithesis of like controlling the, the the culture of the sport it's it's really open to it which i think um i don't think palestine is unique and i think palestine maybe is like unique in that just because it's really new but i think in other places of the world where there's not this sort of like sort of like gimmick about what skaters are yeah mm -hmm. you can see the like joy that people on pieces of wood and wheels in the street is like, it's a really beautiful thing to watch. Yeah. Like I think yeah. as a skater, our, our greatest hope is that people and private property owners will like understand that what we're doing is a creative process and we're, you know, recontextualizing public and private space or whatever. But I genuinely feel like most of the Palestinians I met got that. Yeah. You know, we, when we were in Bethlehem and skated the outledge that came out of the hookah shop, I went in there and we talked with the guy and there's men playing dominoes and drinking tea and it's nine o'clock at night and they moved, you know, a little bit over to create runway through the shop. And then he was stoked <laughs> about it. And like, we sent him the photo from the magazine and you know, they're just pumped. Cause it's which like, magazine? Oh, yeah. yeah uh, you, may, <laughs> you may have heard of it, but uh, yeah, they're just pumped, you know, to see their hookah shop in a magazine and someone skating on the ledge out in front of it. It's just like, yeah, yeah, that's the best you could hope for. It's like so cool. And when I broke my finger, we were skating at a, that double set that's in Ramallah and the shopkeeper turned on the lights for us. He like went yeah. to find the space where like the big industrial light switches, turn them on, watch me break my finger. And then we ran into him on the street the next day, <laughs> uh, almost like a, uh, I don't know, like a movie about a small town or something, you know? He was like, oh, are you, are you all right? Like, everything's good? And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. And I had some like doctor try to bend my finger back. Uh, Dad, did you ever tell the podcast about the I broken finger? I just feel like I need to mention that like, Ryan is officially in the documents of the Ramallah hospital and has a name in the registry. So Ryan is trying to switch tray. What were you trying? Yeah. The last switch, switch tray last down switch this tray like down a gap I ever tried. Yeah. And it's a big, like, this is a big double set in Palestine. This is like our, like, I don't know, our big set basically. Anyway, he rip, he falls, breaks his finger, dislocates it. Super intense we're not really sure what to do. And then he like kind of puts it back in, but we're like, we need to go to the hospital. 
we go to the hospital and we go to like the Ramallah public hospital, which is the urban incoming emergency hospital in Palestine. Like just imagine what that sort of infrastructure is like. He goes in and they're, I don't think they've ever had to deal with a non-Palestinian because he's going in and they're like, what's your name? And they want the full name, which in Palestine is like four parts. It's like your name, your dad's name, your dad's dad's name, and your last name. And Aram, who's with me, is like Ryan Lay. And they're like, yeah, but what's the middle name? And Scott. I feel like the person just didn't get it. <laughs> I feel like they needed the other middle name. They needed one of the names. And then they're just like, he just like throws his hand up and just puts Muhammad in. <laughs> so then they print out a ticket for Ryan to be next up to get his bone relocated. And it says Ryan Muhammad Lay. <laughs> and that is in that is in the Ramallah Hospital <laughs> Registry, which I think like is probably more rad. I mean wow. your thrasher video and the piece was rad, but I feel like as a Palestinian that's maybe a little <laughs> bit more rad. <laughs> that's amazing. This is probably a, a stupid question. I don't know. No stupid questions on this on this show. But we're talking about like kind of how beautiful it is that there's a small scene and part of that is that they're not as indoctrinated into, you know, fresh versus Hesh uh, dichotomies that maybe we, we may have here, or, you know, the identities aren't like formed as skaters. Like I'm, you know, I'm a DIY guy who wears Dickies and has a pocket knife in his back pocket or, you know, the, the costumes <laughs> and the customs with those costumes aren't as prescribed. And, and I'm leading into talk about Gaza skate team, which I think is like, has this like really, miraculous blend of just like wheeled coalition people but uh but have you been to gaza i've never been so i i can't okay. go with a with my id okay and that's like one thing that i mean people may not know which is like you go to palestine that's the west bank there are a select few skaters that are in gaza and oh my god i wish that i had his name pulled up but the the guy who runs gaza skate team is Rajab. Rajab has, you know, has a mini ramp or they have like maybe some sort of public mini ramp. I don't know the, the, what the deal is with it, but on that mini ramp, it's like three skaters, a kid with a BMX bike, two roller skaters, a rollerblader and like six break dancers. And it's like, <laughs> it's like rocket power. They're trying to it's they're fully rocket power. <laughs> like it's not even, uh, it, it's not a skate scene, but there's like something even more miraculous, like, like almost, you know, skaters can be closed minded, but you're like, dude, imagine we would go through Midtown with like six break dancers and a BMXer. Like it would be like, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like Jamal Williams, but like, you know, th there's, there's something that happens with it, with skating being so new, but also being this kind of alternative outlet for some sort of resistance, like to find joy in a place. I mean, Gaza is like, you know, from what I can tell, a way more restricted and repressive social situation than you would have in the West Bank. And so the steam gets let out by any wheeled mechanism. It's like, there's something about that that I think is is really interesting. And, and well, maybe you haven't seen it, but I don't know. I think it, if you know more about that, I would like to know, or just yeah. like that that phenomenon is is... Uh, really cool. No, it is. And I speak, I've never met Rajab, but I speak to him all the time. I've known him from Instagram and WhatsApp and, you know, FaceTime calling since I think like 2018. He started 
with a small crew of inline skaters because they were available in Gaza. And then this Italian parkour skate crew came in like 2015 or something and brought skateboards. And I think it was like the first time that skateboards were brought into Gaza because of the siege. So like Gaza, nothing's allowed in and out of Gaza unless it's through basically like humanitarian aid trucks and like literally calculated amounts of calories that are allowed into the strip. So he ended up picking it up and was like really into skating and sort of started this super small crew, which was composed of whatever they had. It would be like some people have inline skates. There's two skateboards that we can share. Homie on the left is breakdancing and doing parkour. And it sort of is like this ensemble of different street Mm -hmm. cultures that has been enmeshed into one. And graffiti, yeah. And graffiti. And he's, he's doing a really incredible job of trying to like facilitate some sort of sustainable skate culture by getting skateboards and skate gear, as well as like building, like he was sending WhatsApp messages to him today, actually. A skate park that they built last year uh, was bombed by the Israelis, so they don't have that skate park anymore. But he was helping facilitate these NGO workers who were part of this Italian sort of like freestyle and parkour and skate culture, watch them build it and is like super pumped to do DIY stuff. So it, it sort of gets like, he's picking up a lot of the pieces that I think skate culture emits. Like I think skate culture in and of itself is something that's very US American, but can get transcended and spread across this world and digested very differently. And he is like trying to make sense of it in Gaza, which I think is kind of to your point, Ted, that like when skate culture gets transmitted, it gets digested and regurgitated sort of in a really unique way anywhere in the world. And I guess in Palestine, it's sort of just within the broader narrative of Palestinian resistance and sort of connection to the land of just trying to make it work by any means. and. Gaza skate crew and that team is like an incredible version of that where by no means should there be a sustainable skate scene in Gaza because it's been bombed to hell six different wars and it has an ongoing genocide. And, you know, he was messaging me, sending me videos and asking me to, to translate a video of him running a skate session at a UN school, which is hostage or uh, basically like a refuge for thousands of Palestinians. And that I think is like the most rad part of skate culture that anybody who touches a skateboard knows exists in all of us. And when you see it in all of us, we almost have like an obligation to be down for skaters because of that connection to something more powerful than yeah. us. Not even just be down for skaters. I'm down for the rollerbladers. There's a guy <laughs> that rollerblades from Gaza who like hits street spots and I'm so pumped on it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. You know, it's definitely true that the occupation forces hate seeing Palestinians have fun yeah. and they're exceptionally good at it. Yeah. <laughs> like it, 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 it spits in the face of everything that they hope for, which is to terrorize them and, and to dehumanize them and to have fun and be creative and, and make joy out of what you have. They're exceptionally good at it. I mean, we see this in our, on our feeds and our phones every day. It's like people making joy, making bread, making community uh, under the most horrific conditions imaginable, you know, d- despite yeah. or against all odds. Yeah. Oh, man, uh, I was wondering 
I don't know how many people saw the article, your essay in Skate Sean, but uh, did you face any sort of negative backlash at all? I'm just thinking about, you know, we were talking about earlier and just kind of just now, how you know, skateboarding inherently is political. It is anti-establishment, but I feel like there is maybe kind of centered around like the SoCal, like really comfortable, like Cali scene of skaters who kind of want skateboarding not to be political or not or have it just not be representing anything other than just skateboarding and having fun and there's like the idea of key politics out of skateboarding and all these like kind of just ignorant things that i think a lot of skaters unfortunately do think um have you did you see any backlash or any pullback pushback from people uh, saying like, oh, why is this in skate, Sean? Or why are, why are we talking about this? And I guess, what would you say to people like that? I mean, I think your your thesis is already pretty, it's pretty well explained in the essay itself. But I guess, what do you think about that idea that skateboarding actually, or that some people think that skateboarding has no, because I, I remember even seeing it on like places like Twitter where in the beginning where things were still quote unquote complicated, you know, after right after October 7th, there's people who were like, oh, I'm not going to say anything because uh, I just, I don't want to say anything I don't know about. And it's like, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's a, there is a, a viewpoint, I think from some skateboarders that we actually don't have any business in anything political and something that stands for humanity and stuff like that. For this piece, I didn't, I feel like, I think maybe there was like one comment that was like, I'm an Israeli skater. I stand against this or something. But I think like that's kind of indicative of where our culture is. Like I think that there's a small minority who are very attached to power or are complicit in power that don't want to do their own homework mm-hmm. or who can sit in the convenience of it being too complicated. And then I just think there's a lot of people who maybe for their own reasons aren't politicized beings, even though they're even though they're in bodies that are very politicized. Like I think it would be, I don't want to just assume that just because you skateboard, you have to be down with Palestine because I think there's also a lot of trash skaters. That's correct. And <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And I think there's also a lot of like, even outside of Palestine, right? Like there's homophobic and racist and xenophobic and patriarchal skaters who are embedded in our culture. But I think the majority or the like arc of where our scene has always been, has never been given too much weight on those people. So I don't know. I feel like if I were to speak to them, I'd be like, all right, bet you're just like one of these trash skaters that cool, continue on with your life. I'm glad I don't need to have to engage. I think that there is a level, maybe with like the American public, there is a level of people who, like I said, can fall in this mucky middle, but I think it's very convenient. I think when people say like, it's too complicated, it's like, well, it, you have stake in this. Like it's also something that you are investing in. It's not like we're talking about a place that you're not connected to. Like the, the decades of violence in Palestine is part and parcel to us empire and is uplifted because of, uh, green, green lights by the U S and has always been by the West. So I think if people aren't wanting to connect to that, that just says more about where, they're willing to disconnect from, which I think is, you know, I'm not this, not to say that they'll never be able to change or anything, but they probably just have a lot of homework to do. 
and maybe this piece can be an example of one of their first readings. Do you, this is kind of a delicate question or delicate conversation, but do you have any conversation with Israeli skaters? Because I think probably the things that I say attract the most vicious right-wing racist psychos <laughs> who I, I don't know if, uh, if, if they're emblematic. I haven't, you know, spent much time in Israel other than, uh, than crossing through to get into the West Bank. Um, but it, it's sorely disappointing talking to these people. Um, I did meet a really rad Israeli skater when I was in Copenhagen who I talked to who knew about the time I'd spent in the West Bank. And I think there is a part of me, and maybe this is not helpful, but there's a part of me that feels some not sympathy, but understanding that like, yes, your parents or grandparents were the shock troops of apartheid and occupation and you happen to be born there and you're, you know, many of those people, their families were also refugees. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, like, have you had any sort of conversation or is there, because for me, like the through line, whenever I'm talking to a lot of Israelis is that they've not experienced anything unless they did some time in the IDF, which there is mandatory conscription in the IDF, but I don't think that all of them spend time in the West Bank or in Gaza, correct? I don't know the numbers. I think a lot do, but I don't know the like, yeah, the numbers. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever spoken to an Israeli skater. The only time that I could have, and I didn't was in 2021, when I was working on this photo documentary work that I'm continuing, I crossed quote unquote illegally into historic Palestine or Israel to document one of the skaters uh, named Kileni, who was going to visit his girlfriend at the time that was in Haifa. And I'm crossing through a checkpoint and we had like all these cars and taxis lined up to sort of smuggle us in. And he's a skater and like ended up hanging out with his partner at a skate at, a, at an Israeli skate park in Haifa. And I just remember being like so paralyzed. And I think part of it was I can't share this like escape and joy maker that I have with people who are complicit with like yeah. the enactment of violence. And like, granted, these are like little kids, right? They're probably like 14, 15 year old little kids. Mm -hmm. And they would come up to me, speak Hebrew. And I'd be like, I don't speak Hebrew, I speak English. And sort of was like an asshole. And I felt, I felt paralyzed because I didn't want, I think skateboarding is too radical for me to like entrench it in the lovey-dovey shit. <laughs> Uh, I think skateboarding can be lovey-dovey and like can be cute when there's like some boundaries of understanding. But yeah. for me to like assume that I would share those boundaries with kids who are about to be conscripted in like raiding villages and like who might now be in yeah. in Palestine is like something that I that I can't do. And I don't know another like I don't even have that much engagement with Israelis mm -hmm. like. There are a few that I have worked with and I trust who are clearly anti-Zionist and anti-occupation and understand their maybe role in like liberation as people who are opposed to the logics of the settler logics of, of, of Israel's sort of state building. But I can count them on my hand. And when you're in Palestine, I think people think it's almost like you share space or at least in the West Bank or Gaza. Like the only time I see Israelis are soldiers or settlers. They're not like yeah. the, I can't just go to a cafe and be like, Oh, Hey, 
potential friendly Israeli that like, I think the West assumes is like, just is very casual space making. It's like, no, I, the Israelis that I would see are those carrying M16s who are on TikTok behind a bulletproof checkpoint or settlers who in theory, I'm trying to avoid because they might kill me and, or they, or they might, you know, flash their gun at me to intimidate me or raid uh, the olive groves of the neighboring village. Which I think, and I'm saying this knowing that it's probably really bleak, but I think like that's an important foundation for people to understand that like it's not, I think also really fucked with people in thinking that there is this like potential peace. I think that there needs to be like a new understanding and framework of what justice and liberation look like that is not this abstract hypothetical about two people getting along. It's about one oppressive regime dominating one indigenous population and the indigenous population has no duty to peacekeep. And I mean that at like a interpersonal level, it's, it would be really difficult for me to have to sit and talk to an explicit Zionist because I know I don't, sh- I don't share the baseline moral compass of right and wrong, uh-huh. um, which it's, you know, it would be like trying to like casually talk to like a oath keeper. I don't do, I can't do that. And I don't do that. And if he skateboards, I'll yeah. avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the, I think those are the things that, uh, even in the last two months, I didn't really completely understand. I think I've completely changed how I view the whole situation. I never, you know, I, I feel like my own learning about the situation, I didn't do enough research and stuff like that. I didn't know enough as every American, obviously, but I think the, the fact that it literally is like that, like you can't just talk to an Israeli, like you said, like it is, I mean, what you were describing earlier, just, it sounds like fucking Jim Crow America. You know what I mean? Like it literally is that. And I think people, when they hear things like apartheid and genocide, they're like, oh, that's, no, those are like big words that mean way worse stuff. But like, do you actually know what's happening? And I think, yeah, I mean, saying stuff like that is, I feel like just really important to even tell people in America. Just, I, I really don't think people have any, conception of that yeah yeah they either don't know the history or the context or they do and they're psychos like there's there's you know much like american (laughs) history right it's like if you believe in it you it requires a certain level of derangement and like viciousness you know yeah that's that's a, a thing that essentially the liberal imagination in america is sort of dedicated to which is the idea that we can stay out of it which is like, oh my God, these like people that hate each other are like killing each other. Oh yeah, I just feel bad for everyone. That sounds terrible, but like I can't get into that. And you're like, you're into it, motherfucker. You bought those bombs. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell you, but you not wanting to be into it is actually you saying how the Israeli military is conducting its operations is actually tacitly approved by your contributions. My contributions as well, Ryan's, Adam's. But I post, so uh, it's actually, um, I've done enough. Uh, so hey, We'll see what I do in April. So, But that's essentially it, is that we have this idea that we can be separated from it. And this is like a main theme. Like, same with American history. Like, I'm, I'm literally from like genocided sand. Like, the you know, the blood's barely dry. And 
we have a notion that because it happened some time ago that that we can kind of just kind of move on and and imagine that history is kind of the separate thing than than the moment we're living in and if there are some people who think that like the way the west was colonized like they do exist they live in phoenix they are viciously evil people and yeah it's just like kind of moving people to understand that like your desire to be separate because you just kind of want a civil life. It's it's predicated on the the misery and death of other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So great. It's a great system we built. <laughs> <laughs> the the clarity with which you can just tell how untenable the occupation is and how unsafe it makes everybody is like again just so stark. Like you just know. Like of course, what do you think ten year old kids who get shot at and and endure violence and raids like what do you think that those kids are going to do you know like what what do you think that is going on in their brains like living that Mm -hmm. just uh mon just another question about like uh obviously we talked about being very understandably jaded by everything even your first time going to palestine and since october 7th as we've seen there's been a lot more huge like giant marches probably the most I think you said the one in D.C. was the biggest one on November 4th was the biggest one in America for Palestine. Does that make you feel any greater sense of faith or hope about the situation at all? Does it, how does your, the side of you that's very jaded, how do you, how do you feel about how do you wrangle that, those feelings or, or is it, does, does anything feel different? Does this feel like all the same? It, I don't know. Does it, does it bring you any hope? I feel like I've never felt this level of people kind of getting it Mm -hmm. in the way that they do now. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like I see obviously like the huge number of people who are taking to the streets and doing actions and sort of confronting the, this sort of like liberal imagination that Ted was saying and, and confronting the the powers that be to say, you know, at the bare minimum ceasefire and (laughs) the, (laughs) the, I guess like the lens on that, that's really inspiring in a way is that people are picking up the language in a way that I think if you would have told me five years ago, people would be calling it apartheid. People would be calling Zionism racism. People would be calling what established Israel and the continued sort of state making apparatus as settler colonization. I would have been like, no way. Like, I don't trust people in getting it yet. And I think what has been so captivating is that you have a small number of Palestinians, mostly in Gaza, who are documenting their day-to-day, pumping it on Instagram. And it's shape-shifting decades of billions of dollars of propaganda Mm -hmm. and APAC money and political elite sort of like cushiness to Israel, sort of within a month. And I think that testament to that truth of just showing people the reality is sort of allowing people to cut through the bullshit. And, you know, I've had multiple conversations with my mom or my dad or my grandma or my aunts and my uncles. And it's the first time that I'm hearing them say that like in your lifetime, Palestine will be free. And it feels really rad to hear that just to be like, okay, we're on 
this is the hardest month, two months that I've ever had to face in terms of just like the news and what's happening. And even when I was in Palestine, like just the amount of violence that was just like percolating. But to know that there is truth in this cause and that people are picking up on it and that there's justice that's in the horizon feels really, really rad. feels really important. And it feels, I'm so happy to be Palestinian as painful as my identity is. Um, because I know that at the end of the day, our cause is a just one. Mm-hmm. And like every just cause, it will see its, its day. It will see its, its victory. Yeah. I I would, I would add on a, on a petty note, it has been beautiful to watch Zionist propaganda break down in real time. (laughs) They cannot figure out what the hell they're doing and they just cannot operate in the, in a world where people are on their phones 24 seven. And it's just important that they're breaking like that ability to break through. I just thought, I guess it's, it's amazing to see how young people with phones documenting just reality mm-hmm. can break through the insane levels of si- censorship and silence on what reality is in Palestine. Yeah. And I don't know, I feel like there's a reckoning happening everywhere. I mean, like Palestine is a litmus test for everything. Mm-hmm. Like there's a reckoning happening in media. There's a, re- a reckoning happening in the political apparatus. There's a reckoning happening in like the UN systems and how they operate the ICC and what they're thinking of. And it feels exceptionally powerful that there is this reckoning happening because of like not too many people with an iPhone and broken English. Because this stuff has been going on for decades. You know, the the fact that we have phones that can transmit it to the internet immediately is what's changed things. Yeah. And you also see, I mean, that's part of the perversion of the US is that you, having seen it, you also have like leaders of other liberal democracies not making the the full change but like macron and fucking my boy trudeau in canada you know there's like there there is not like complete adherence to the the us line that is kind of breaking down in whatever incremental ways which is like maybe maybe hopeful but uh i have a question about well i have two questions the first will be living in the us although conflicted if you don't live in a 500 square foot basement apartment that uh, costs uh, every cent in your bank account, it's pretty nice if you're of a sort of middle class, <laughs> educated, if, if you've got the means to get around. It's just, you know, we, we have all sorts of, we got all sorts of freedom, man. Uh, but no, you know, you can skate, <laughs> I can go skate essentially wherever I want. I can meet up with friends wherever I want, go to any sort of show, eat wherever I want, move to, you know, anywhere in between the Atlantic and the Pacific. There's a lot of uh, choice to be made in, in America where you're sort of unrestricted if you have the means. I'm not saying that you have all the means, but you have, you have access to a middle-class life in America. But I know that you want to go back to Palestine, what sort of spurs that desire? I hope this does not come across as America is good and you should stay here because we're the best. No, 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 no. It's a a good question. I think, I think first of all, I'll always be 
between these worlds. Like, I don't know. I'm my nuclear family all lives in the U S still. So like, even when I go back to Palestine, there's still some connection to the U S but I, the important thing that happened to me in 2014 in the years that followed is I saw that I am part of a cause, whether I like it or not, I was born into it. I feel obligated to support. I feel obligated to engage with. I feel obligated to utilize my privilege to confront and try in whatever way I can to achieve this justice of ours. And I think I've learned and picked up pieces to that throughout the years, right? Like I got my master's degree and did the human rights stuff sort of was jaded and was like, okay, maybe that's not the avenue. Skateboarding is another huge component of it. Like I feel really privileged to be part of what I think is going to be a really beautiful skate scene for much longer than I'm going to be skating. And to have my fingerprints on that scene, to have my photos and to document it feels like really important. And like, I don't know, like Palestine, and this is not to say that like I'm conditioning this to say that this is not to discredit the insane and vile amount of violence that's happening and the genocide that's happening. But Palestine is a beautiful place. Like Palestine has beautiful people. It has culture. Uh, I have learned so much from my family who lives in Palestine, like my grandmother and my uncles. I'm connected to a long history of like, I'm, I'm proud to be a peasant and the peasant class because I'm connected to a huge history of indigenous agriculture and learnings and knowledge that for me is like way more important than that stupid master's degree I got. And to be connected to that in the real sense, I think is really, it's much more liberating than like the conveniences of America. I think the conveniences of this country are nice and I understand how privileged I am to have a passport that lets me go anywhere and to have a social security number and you know all of the things that come with being being a citizen here. We've got five lane residential roads. <laughs> yeah. Not me. Not me. Yeah. I mean what's ironic is that when Ryan broke his finger, I think the, the cost to, to fix his finger and to get it casted and readjusted was like Fourteen dollars or something. <laughs> if he would have done that in the U.S., he would have been broke. Sheesh. But I think it's it's that layer of life that's actually in Palestine that, for me, is uh, I want to be a part of that. Like that's where I find I want to spend my life. And I could be naive, you know. Maybe that'll change. But I think I had seven years there, and I'm still going back, and can't wait to actually like move back uh hopefully next year i I don't know how this comes across uh please give me some generosity but since october 7th more than 200 people have been shot dead in the west bank by settlers or occupation forces are you scared to live there like is part of it uh, a scary life um this is a sixth graders question (laughs) <laughs> it's definitely scary. I think 
even like what Ryan was saying is that like sometimes you you can't avoid it. It's like you'll be walking trying to find a skate spot and you'll see yeah. a raid. Or I'll be walking from the gym and see somebody be abducted. You know, I rarely am putting myself proactively in hot spots of violence. Even when I photograph, like I'm I'm not the like drop in parachute photographer who's trying to like go on the front line. I'm trying to document the life that's happening around it, even if it's at a demonstration or a protest or a clash, but it's, it's, you know, it's not chill. I think there's a lot of people in this country who live a life that's also very scary. And I think there's a lot of people all around the world who, who consistently are in predicaments of fear or terror. And I don't necessarily feel like safe here. I think there's a lot of like maybe physical security that I have. Like, I'm, I don't know. I'm pretty white passing. I don't have an accent or anything. Like rarely are people assuming, you know, things of me, but I don't know. This country has a lot of fucking crazy people in it. Right. Like I'm, when I think of like potential violence and guns, like <laughs> I'm like, damn, I'm glad I have a Palestinian passport. So when that shit pops <laughs> off, I can get out of here. Uh, good point. Point well taken. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I guess, uh, is there anything that you would say skaters, people listening to this podcast, anyone can do to help support Palestinian people and even Skate Pal or just any other organizations you know, or just anything that we can do to make this just keep on going forward, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like, follow Skate Pal and the Gaza Skate team on Instagram. They're always posting stuff. If you want to come and hopefully sessions like skate sessions will be back up at Skate Pal uh, volunteer. It's a great opportunity. I mean, you get to spend like a month or two months in Palestine skateboarding, which is really rad. I've never met somebody who left and wasn't changed. Never met a single person whose life wasn't changed visiting. Visiting is important. I think visiting sort of ethically, like Ryan sort of dictated a great way of doing it where you're not doing like a week in Israel and a week in Palestine trying to do some weird political tourism, like come to Palestine, you can fly into Tel Aviv, but like come to Palestine uh, or stay in Palestinian cities inside historic Palestine and like show up. I mean, there's protests and actions and fundraisers that are happening everywhere. Don't feel like you as a skater have to be marginalized from this moment. I think uh, a reminder to all skaters is that like we're also political agents we are people who have stake in a better future and a better imagination and it doesn't just have to be in our echo chambers of skateboarding i think there's so many people in like you know bent city even you know from the years that i've been listening has lens and an audience to i believe like-minded people who want to imagine a more better world and there's opportunities in your neighborhoods there's opportunities in cities across the world to to show up for palestine stand in solidarity stand in solidarity for palestine do your homework like there's all these resource guides i see online click them open up the tabs even if you don't read them now just keep them up and and peruse when you can but uh remind yourself that you have stake in a free palestine and that is because you are agents to change how this country operates everywhere in the world, really, but especially in a place like Palestine, where Israel receives the most funding out of any country that this country gives to. All right. One last question to close this out. 
do you condemn pro skaters putting out video parts oh my. after Thanksgiving <laughs> and before December 10th? God. <laughs> do I condemn skaters doing a year in rap Doing a, a deliberate Sodi push. A, a shameless Sodi push. I don't know. Do you, do you like watching the best video parts ever back to back for five days after November 29th? <laughs> Does that make you feel good about the world? Uh, these are all tough questions. No, who do you got for Sodi? Do you have a Sodi pick? <laughs> You're allowed to say who your Sodi pick is. Maybe we'll put it out before it comes out. Is Tom Knotts up for vote? I think, every, I, think oh, yeah, I think everyone's up for a vote. He's, yeah, down. he's down. He's also visited. Uh, yeah, I know. He's down for the, he's down for the cause. I'm a loyalist. <laughs> and he's got a mean set of tricks and parts that he put out. I think I might vote for Tom Knox if my Max. vote matters. Your vote matters. If one, if if there's one thing we've learned in the it past, matters more than it matters for the Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> Ted, can you relay that to management? <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit here like this. <laughs> Can't say anything. Well, you know I love you, but this has been um, just like an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank Thanks, you, Bob. and thank you all for having me. Thank you, Skate John, for yes. putting out the piece. Like I said, there's so much, so little fear I had about skaters showing up for Palestine. And I think that's indicative. Sweet. Yeah, that was great. Link in the show notes. Oh, yeah. That was awesome. Cool. Thank yeah, you, Mon. Thanks, Mon. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Our intro music is by the band Roar. Our credits music is by Dylan Brine. Our logo and graphic design, as always, is by Michael Warfel. And this episode has been mixed and edited by Adam Burns. Well, I thought it would be a fitting skit, considering the the tone where I walked through San Francisco last night and said thank you to the good, kind people on the ProFlow tier, but it looks like my recorder does not want to transfer files onto my computer. So here I am in the hotel room saying thank you, as always, to the wonderful Sean Doyle, Andy Yamazaki, Alex Kissinger, SAG, everyone who's been there, back to show. We love you all. All right. I'm going to go break this fucking recorder.